Well, a number of you have requested that we continue in Hebrews. Uh, Romans, right. We're in chapter 11, and uh, we're actually picking up where we left off a month ago. We're going to do part two of verse four. And we are talking about worshiping in faith. Now, we've got some new projectors, and they're hooked into a computer. And uh, Christian Collins, who's running the computer right now, has a copy of my notes. So you're going to be able to follow along really well and be able to actually, maybe for the very first time, fill in all the blanks. (laughs) Sound exciting? So we're going we're gonna to experiment with this thing. If it's a little slow or a little too fast, just kind of bear with us. We're, we're on a learning curve with this, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy that we have this capability. Worshiping in faith, we're going to look at uh, a man by the name of Abel. The early church was compro- composed primarily of Jewish people. Did you know that? And it was uh, many, many years before uh, the tide turned and Gentiles then began to become believers in Jesus Christ. But predominantly, the early church was Jewish. started in Jerusalem and began to expand out. And it was only uh, until the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish rabbi, became converted and believed in Jesus. Then the gospel turned to the Gentiles. So, what I'm suggesting is that the book we're studying is written to Jewish people. And we don't know what size this congregation was in particular, whether it was a small, in effect, much like our mini church, or it was a a 50, 60 person congregation. We don't know. The point is, there were some Jewish people who had professed to believe in Jesus but they were having difficulties, and this pastor is writing this letter to urge them on, to exhort them on in the faith. They were facing opposition. They were facing trials, persecution from Jewish family members, neighbors, business associates. Uh, Remember, Christianity was looked on as uh, a blasphemous cult. And uh, especially if you were a religious Jew, you were committed to stamping it out. And uh, that, that mentality would uh, pretty much pervade the Jewish community. And so uh, Christianity was looked on uh, not with a lot of love uh, by a lot of Jewish people. And so these people who had converted were suffering terribly. Problem was that some of them needed to press further on into the faith to withstand the persecution. And because they hadn't, they were tempted to, if not already, running back to the cover of Judaism and to all the ceremonies and all the rituals and all that they had grown up with and had been familiar with and could identify with and hence wouldn't be persecuted. So in other words, it was a security issue, their own safety. So the pastor here writes to them, urging them, proving to them through the first ten chapters of his letter that Jesus is better than all that they knew. In fact, that he is the fulfillment of everything that they knew in the history of their religion. Jesus is better than the angels. He was better than Moses, better than Abraham. Jesus was better than the sacrifices that were offered, better than the priesthood, better than the high priest. So over and over and over, he gives them testimony that Jesus really is the person, the one person that they must commit to, they must trust in. And all that they've known from their past pointed to him. He was the fulfillment of everything. Very clear. Now, if his 
brothers, his Jewish brothers and sisters, were in fact, if they were to enjoy a true relationship with God, on what basis were they to engage and enjoy that relationship? On what basis? By faith. Now remember, this is critical because at this point in history, Judaism had degenerated to a religion of works. It was a religious cult at this particular point in time. The, the mentality was that these people had to do all these religious works in order to gain God's favor. If they were to enjoy God's favor, it must be by faith, not by works. The point of chapter 11 now is to show them from their own history, from their own scriptures, going all the way back to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter 4, the first of the ancients who were commended by God, to show them that it's always been by faith. Anybody could come to God, but on the basis of faith, not their works. Are you with me? So that's where we're coming up to speed. Now, Abel's faith, I want you to read with me uh, the first four verses of chapter 11. The writer says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I am sure of what I hope for. I am certain of what I do not see. You can't convince me that there isn't a God. You can't convince me with all the scientific mumbo-jumbo, all the psychological mumbo-jumbo, that Jesus Christ isn't the only way. You can't convince me. I know too much. I've seen too much. I've read too much. I am absolutely certain and confident that this book called the Bible is God's word. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I've tried it. I've tested it. I've practiced it. And I've witnessed God's faithfulness to the principles that he has given to me in his word. I believe. I am certain beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, I can't see God. I can't touch him. I can't feel him physically. I don't need to. I know that he is real. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is God and the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to the Father except through him. I believe that. I'm certain. Absolutely. My whole life is devoted to that. That's, all that gives my life direction and purpose and meaning. There's nothing any more significant or substantial I can do except to invest myself continually in the kingdom of God. So I'm convinced. So faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This, he says, is what the ancients were commended for. What were they commended for? Their faith. They believed. They believed. They hung everything on God. They believed. Did they face varieties of adverse circumstances? Always. Do you? Always. The only person, the only entity, the only thing, if I can use those words, that can bring us through and give us any sense of confidence and peace and hope is Jesus Christ. And everybody, everybody at some point on that continuum of life is going to have to come to the realization that whatever earthly, temporal resources they've relied on, they're not going to be sufficient. And some people only come to that realization after death. And of course, it's too late. 
it's much better to realize it early, isn't it? Get a good early start. Right, Ken? Yes. Jump down to verse 4. Abel is the first of the ancients that the writer to the Hebrews is going to point to. So his congregation can see, oh yeah, it's by faith. It's not by works. It's by faith. And we're going to talk about what that means. So he says, by faith. Now he says that three times in this verse with respect to Abel. By faith, Abel offered God, what kind of a sacrifice? A better sacrifice than Cain did. Cain was his brother, remember? Secondly, by faith, he, meaning Abel, was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And thirdly, by faith again, he, meaning Abel, still speaks, even though he is dead. Now, I want to suggest to you that Abel's faith led to three progressive things, three elements which are all true of or essential to worship. These are critical to worship, true worship. If you're going to worship God, you can only worship God by faith. That's right. And who's our model? Abel. (laughs) Abel is our model. We're going to look and see and learn from him what true worship is all about. How does one worship in faith? Does that sound exciting? All right. Now, follow with me. There are these three elements. The first one is true sacrifice. What sacrifice was offered by Abel? You remember? It was a blood sacrifice. Why a blood sacrifice? Yuck. Because the wages of sin is death. So a life has to be given to pay for sin. So Abel offered a particular sacrifice. He offered a what? A lamb, didn't he? Now I suggested to you in part one a month ago, if you remember, when we talked about the true sacrifice, if you weren't here and you want to get the tape, it's available in the bookstore after the service. I suggested to you that God communicated both to Cain and Abel three things. He communicated to them when to sacrifice, where to sacrifice, and what to sacrifice. God God told them. It's important for us to realize that God is not holding out on us. He wants us to know exactly what His will is. He is so emphatic about it, He's written to us a definitive work. His Word. So way back in the beginning, because sin had entered in through Adam, His sons were sinners... They were sinful. If there is to be a relationship with God, that relationship with God had to come on the basis of a sacrifice. Already you see the vicarious sacrifice. You see the substitutionary sacrifice through that lamb. Abel offers the better sacrifice than Cain. He offers the true sacrifice. He offers the sacrifice that God had prescribed. Did God prescribe a lamb? I'm going to tell you yes. Because we see in all the history dealings with the God with man, when he comes to Israel, what kind of offering was the sin offering? What was the offering that had to be offered on the Day of Atonement in the temple? A spotless lamb. Jesus, later on, is called the what of God? The Lamb of God. You see the consistency? Was there a specific time 
in which Israel was to sacrifice? Yeah, the Day of Atonement. Consistent with a specific time that Cain and Abel were to sacrifice. Was there a specific time? Was there a specific day? Was there a specific moment in which Jesus was to be sacrificed? Absolutely. So we see a specific place, a specific time, and a specific sacrifice. So worship involves, first of all, true sacrifice. True sacrifice. Now, we don't sacrifice animals. There has already been one final sacrifice made for us. True? Jesus. So it's upon that sacrifice that we now, as we trust in in Christ's death for us, that we now can have accessibility to God. What's the very first thing that we want to do? We want to worship God, don't we? We want to worship God. The second thing is true righteousness. The second element of worship is true righteousness. And the third element is true witness. Now these are progressive. Now let me, let me describe to you what I mean. Because Abel believed, because he believed, he offered a true or better sacrifice than did Cain. Did Cain, in offering his sacrifice, evidence belief? Huh? Did he? What did Cain sacrifice? The fruit of the ground, right? Was that the sacrifice that God had prescribed? No, so he didn't believe God. He didn't do what God said. That's why his sacrifice wasn't commended. That's why he wasn't declared righteous as was Abel. If your worship is to be true, it can't be on the basis of whatever you want to sacrifice. It can't be on the basis of whatever your righteousness is. It has to come from another source. Do you follow? And we're going to get into this a little more deeply. Just hang with me. So because Abel believed, he offered a true or better sacrifice than Cain. And now because he offered a better sacrifice, he obtained true righteousness. Because he offered that better sacrifice, he was able now to obtain true righteousness. And because he obtained true righteousness, he is for all ages a living voice. That's what we're told in the latter part of verse 4 in Hebrews. He still speaks. He's a living voice and he says God's righteous will live by faith. So we're going to live our life by faith and we're going to live eternally by faith. Okay? Now, it's only faith that wins approval from God. Say that with me. It's only faith that wins approval from God. One more time. You're not all with me. You're still writing. It's only faith that wins approval from God. It's not works. I had a conversation last night after the service with a woman in our church. Been in our church for years. And she, she struggles every single day of her life with pleasing people. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All of us, right? Everybody should raise their hands. We're all people pleasers, aren't we? We all want to be accepted. We want people to smile at us. None of us, our favorite thing is rejection, right? So we do everything we can possibly do in our power to be accepted, liked, certainly not to be rejected. True? So she's, she's been laboring for years under this thing of, of, of just always having to please people, always having to pretend, always having to, and she's just burdened by this thing. 
Well, the logical conclusion of that for her with respect to her relationship with God is that she has got to always continue to earn God's approval. Does that make you follow? It makes sense. I mean, if this is your life, this is your lifestyle, you're always trying to please people, then it's very logical to think you're going to project that very same dynamic onto your relationship with God and say, you've got to work, work, work. God's never happy enough with me. He's never pleased with me. He's always mad at me. If I step out of line, if I don't pray right, if I don't witness, if I don't read my Bible enough, God's not going to be happy with me. Now, of course, none of you deal with that. And so I talked to her. I said, you know, the, the issue, you got the focus in the wrong place. And she's just so heavenly burdened. I said, it's by faith. She says, I believe. She can quote the Bible. She can quote all the verses. She says, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But, but I, I just, I'm stuck. I said, that's true. You believe in Jesus. But you haven't yet trusted him. You haven't yet trusted him. Big difference. We're going to explore that difference. Okay? Now, the only thing that obtained righteousness for Abel was the fact that in faith he did what God told him to do. In other words, he believed God and he did what God said. He offered the appropriate sacrifice. That's the only thing that obtained righteousness for him. That's the only thing that changes a man's relationship with God. All of us are born sinners. All of us are born with a bent away from God. We are all dead to God, the Bible says. We are all born enemies of God. We are all born headed for hell. How many realize that? We are born in a lost, fallen, hopeless state. The Bible says that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but He wants all to repent and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And hence we preach the good news. So what is the thing that can change a man's relationship with God? It's not a matter of how good you are. It's not a matter of how good-looking you are. It's not a matter of how much money you have or what your education is. It's whether or not we trust in Him. That's what it boils down to. Do I trust Him really? That's what counts with God. What counts with God? Do I trust Him? How many parents do we have? Parents, you got your hands up. All the parents, get your hands up. All right, now. Do you want your kids to trust you? If they trust you, presuming you're giving them wise, godly counsel, what are they going to do? They're going to act on that wise, godly counsel. They're going to obey you. They're going to do what you say. And their life is going to what? Flourish. You see? Who wants their life to flourish? <laughs> It'll never flourish. It'll never flourish until you come to the place where you relinquish control and you begin to trust Him. Some of you have realized that. I had a woman come to me this morning at the 8 o'clock service. And she's been in this church for nine years. She's heard me preach. How many have heard me preach this message before? There's no other message. Isn't that true? I mean, the Bible is a statement of optimum redundancy, isn't it? It says the same thing over and over and over and over again. Trust me, trust me, trust me. That's all God says. She's heard me preach this for nine years. She came to me this morning. She says, she says I can't tell you. I can't tell you what's happened in my life. She says, finally, 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 I decided to trust him. And she said, it's like I just experienced a brand new life. Something has happened inside of me. I am free for the first time. And she could hardly contain herself. Next week, she's going to come share her testimony. Eight o'clock service, though. (laughs) 
You see, our trust in him is evidenced by one thing and one thing only, and that is obedience to his word. Because we trust God, we obey God. Say that. Because we trust God, we obey God. See, if you don't trust him, not obey him. You're going to lean on your own understanding. You're going to trust in your own way. You know, if you ever do any marriage counseling, the Bible is so clear. You can't get any clearer with respect to marriage counseling. I mean, it's not a mystery. It says husbands do this. Wives do this. And guess what? The marriage will flourish. It's that simple. Now, do husbands and wives do that? No. It's amazing. It's absolutely tragic. Because people are leaning on their own understanding, their own self-will. And you know what? They can say all day long, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. But it doesn't work for me. Why? Well, the bottom line is, you don't really trust Him. And because you don't trust Him, you will not do what He says. Does that sound too hard? I'll tell you. You're in my job for a little while, you'll find out. Question. Was Cain sinful? Yes, Cain was sinful. Was Abel... Like his brother Cain, also sinful? So they're both sinners, right? Is it possible, however, that maybe Abel was a better person than Cain? More likable, more moral, nicer guy, more dependable? Is it possible that maybe Abel was just a a better person? I think so. I think so. Could it be that if Abel was a better person, that it was those qualities that he possessed of morality and dependability and trustworthiness, those qualities that he possessed that made his sacrifice acceptable to God? You sure? Was it maybe the fact that Cain, his brother, didn't possess those qualities that made his sacrifice unacceptable to God? Are you sure? Are you sure? Rosie, what do you think? <laughs> What's the difference? That's right. The way in which the sacrifices were made. Abel made his sacrifice in obedient faith. Cain made his sacrifice in disobedient unbelief. Disobedient unbelief. Abel's was the kind of faith Get this. If you don't get anything out of this message, get this. Abel's was the kind of faith that allows God to move in on your behalf and to change you and make you righteous. That's the kind of faith. God comes into a person's life by His Spirit. Comes into a person's life sovereignly awesomely, powerfully, and begins this work of transformation and change. He does things that you could never do in your life. He makes changes in your life you could never accomplish, you could never dream of. He takes brokenness and makes it beautiful. He takes hopelessness and gives it life. He takes people who are strung out on drugs and sets them free with no withdrawal. He takes people whose marriages are in the sewer. Worse, they've been washed out to sea. No hope. And he can put them back together. He heals the brokenhearted. He gives sight to the blind. He sets loose the chains from the captive. Things that you and I could never accomplish on our own, despite all of our technology, 
all of our savvy, all of our education, all of our abilities. Only God can do those things. And how does he do them? Because you trust him. And the minute, the instant you trust him, he comes into your life. He invades your life. Don't you like that? He invades your life. And he sets up house cleaning. But he doesn't just clean the house. He rebuilds it from the foundation up. He gives you a brand new personality. Woo! Isn't that great? A brand new personality. You become a new person, a new creation. And now you have a bent towards God rather than the natural bent away from Him. And it's all by what? Faith. Faith. But it's Abel's kind of faith. It's Abel's kind of faith. True faith is always obedient. Somebody say that. All right, now, what's the opposite? What happens if you're disobedient? What does that say about your faith? You don't believe. See, we, when you're disobedient, you're operating from a basis of what? Lack of trust. Right? I don't really trust you. It's like if my son disobeys me, he doesn't trust what I say. He wants to go do his thing. He won't believe me. And he's going to pay a price. I guarantee it. I'm just trying to save him some grief, right parents? So the Lord says, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And as long as I keep trusting him, I will walk in obedience to what he says. And my life will flourish. Isn't my life to be an act of worship? Absolutely. Absolutely. So true faith is always obedient. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who had believed him, he said, if you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. Lots of people saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus, aren't there? But who's really a disciple? The ones who what? Hold to his teaching. Does obedience bring faith? Does obedience bring faith? Dan, what do you think? Does obedience bring faith? No, good. Very good. Does faith bring obedience? Aha! Yes. Absolutely. Not only does it bring obedience, but it also brings the very desire to live righteously. I trust you. I trust you. I see the way. I understand. I want to do what you want. Does that make sense? I have this incredible, insatiable desire to do what you want. Because I what? I trust you. And as I do that, am I not living my life as an act of worship? Am I not engaged in true worship? Yes. You know, sometimes people confuse the teaching of obedience with legalism. I've been accused of that, of being a legalist, because I emphasize obedience so much. If you've been in this church very long at all, you don't don't have to be a rocket scientist to come to the conclusion that I believe in obedience-oriented teaching. Has that ever dawned on anybody? Now, because I do that, and because I teach that way, people have accused me of being a legalist. I'm not a legalist. If you knew me... I'm the, one of the most gracious people you'd ever want to meet. Isn't that true, Cynthia? Amen. Ken, is that true? Yeah. Dan, is that true? Sure. Yeah. Yes, you better answer yes. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is with people who confuse teaching on obedience with legalism is that they don't understand, now get this, That obedience 
is the supernatural result of faith. What is it? The supernatural result of faith. It's not the natural result. It's a supernatural result. You can't obey God. You can't do what God says except by His power. He makes it possible. It is supernatural. It's a supernatural result of trusting Him, obeying Him. What does Paul say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. It's a miracle. You think, well, walking in obedience, I've got to obey God. No! When you really trust Him, you hunger to have His power in your life. You hunger to do what He wants. And you know and you believe and you experience Him working life. Somebody say amen. Amen. You know, we can't, we can't claim to have faith in God and then continually disregard His Word, can we? But James, James chapter 2, James must have known some people who thought that way. They could say, I believe in God, but they, in effect, disregard His Word, lean on their own understanding. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. Oh, there it is. This, this is great, isn't it? I love this. James says this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? What do you think? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? It's dead. It's worthless. It's useless. It is not saving faith, beloved. It is not valid faith. Did Cain believe that God existed? Absolutely. Did God pronounce him righteous? No. Do the demons believe that God exists? Are they saved? No. See, you can believe God exists. You can even believe in Jesus. But unless you have trusted in Him, unless you have learned what it means to let go of the controls and abandon yourself to Him, trust in Him, you'll not know His power, His grace, and you'll not know His love. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Cain believed that God exists. Demons believed so. But, James says in verse 20 of that passage, Recognize this, you foolish man, that faith without works is useless. And then in verses 21 and 22, James drives home his point by reminding his readers of Abraham's faith, for which he also was counted righteous. And that faith was demonstrated by Abraham's obedience. Abraham's obedience in one particular situation, and it's described in Genesis chapter 22. You have to understand the import of that event. God had promised to bless Abraham. And that blessing was going to come through Isaac. And Isaac was going to be the forefather of multitudes of generations. Many, many offspring. And this was something that was a blessing to be a blessing to Isaac, or to Abraham. And so, the promise is made 25 years before Isaac is born. Finally, Isaac is born. It's going to be another 25 to 30 years before the promise actually begins to be set in motion. So now Abram has a son Isaac. He dotes on him. The son grows up. The son rises and sets on him. He's the love of his life. He goes, oh man, Isaac, he's my boy. He's my boy. And then he's about 25 or 30 years old. 
God says to Abram one night, take your son Isaac, your only son. Poignant words. Take him up on the mountain. Sacrifice him to me. Abraham, for all we know, didn't flinch. Would you? Would you say, but God, God, what about the promise? You said that you'd bless, you'd bless through Isaac, and, and, if, and if I take him up and sacrifice him, what? See, there was a very real present circumstance, wasn't there? What did Abraham trust in, the circumstance or the promise? He knew God was faithful. He knew God was faithful. He didn't flinch. The next morning he got up. He got the wood. He got the fire. He got all prepared. He said to Isaac, his son, we're going to go up on the mountain and we are going to worship God. He told his family and all the servants, we're going to worship God. We will be back. He's going up on the mountain. Isaac doesn't have a clue what's going to happen. Isaac says, Father, where is the sacrifice? (laughs) And Abraham says, My son, the Lord will provide. I mean, it's getting close. It's getting tight. Abraham is clinging to what? He's clinging to a promise. That which he cannot see, that which he has not yet realized... He's clinging to a promise that was a very real present circumstance that threatens everything he lives for. They get up on the mountain. He stacks the wood. Ties up Isaac. By that time it dawns on Isaac. He's the sacrifice. (laughs) Lays him on the fire. Gets it ready. Knife is up in the air. What's going to happen? Imagine, you don't, you don't, you've never heard the story. You've never read it in the Bible. You don't know the outcome, and you're watching this on TV. What would you think? <laughs> Just at the last moment, at the last instant, God says, no. You go, huh? <gasps> Giant relief. What's the point? Abraham trusted God. He trusted God with his most prized, prized possession. It didn't look good going up the mountain. But just at the appointed moment, God intervened according to his plan and purpose and said, Isaac will live. Abraham, his faith was demonstrated by his obedience because he trusted God. He had the resources to do what God said. Beloved, we can't, we can't work our way to God. We can't work our way to God. But having come to Him, works will become evident. And those works prove that our faith is genuine. They prove that our faith is genuine. The Apostle Paul says that the Christian, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Christian is created, or literally recreated, in Christ Jesus to do good works that were prepared beforehand for him to do. Do you know that verse? See, God, before the foundation of the world, God already had a plan and purpose for your life. He waits for you to become born again so that now you can carry out that plan and purpose or rather he can carry it out through your life. Abel was counted righteous not because he was righteous but because he trusted God. Because he trusted God. And now, because he trusted God, because he obtained righteousness, guess what? He has a true witness. He still speaks, we're told. Abel has a a three-point sermon that he continues to deliver even though he's dead. Here's his three-point sermon. First point. Man comes to God by faith, not by works. How does man come to God? By faith, not by... You can't work your way to Him. 
Abel keeps telling us that. You want to come to God? You want to enjoy His favor? You want to be able to worship Him? It's by faith, not by works. Secondly, man must accept and obey. Man must accept and obey what God says above his own reason and self-will. Do you accept what God says and obey it above your own reason and your own self-will? Or do you lean on your own understanding? You trust in your own way? Are we in the habit of learning to acknowledge Him in all of our ways? And thirdly, Abel says that sin will be severely punished. There is a day of reckoning when everyone is going to stand before God and give account. If you can't say, my account has been fully paid in Christ, I trusted Him, then you will pay for all the rest of eternity for your sin. You've offended an infinite holy God, therefore your punishment will be infinite also. Never, ever be satisfied. How do you know that you're a Christian? Let me say it this way. How do other people know that you're a Christian? By what you say to them? Or how you act? If you were going to be arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Could there be enough evidence amassed against you to say, Aha, this person is a genuine Christian. Would there be? What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that if you are not living truly, fruitfully as a Christian, you have some reason to examine yourself. The Apostle Paul says, check yourself out to make sure you are of the faith can't worship God unless you are trusting in His prescribed sacrifice. can't worship God unless you have obtained true righteousness, not self-righteousness, not a human-generated righteousness. can't really worship God unless your testimony, your witness is true and ongoing. When people look at our lives... What do they see? Do they see people who are different, unique, attractive? Or do they see people who are obnoxious, self-righteous, judgmental, and critical? Tragically, many people see that. Are we willing to be people who will humble ourselves to God? And say, Lord, your will be done. I want your will to be done. And we walk by faith every day in every life circumstance. We go out and we, and, we, and we begin to interact with people not threatened, not fearful, not anxious, but confident that God has arranged that we be in this environment, in this situation, in this relationship, because he wants to work through us. We just need to be careful not to be offensive. If there is to be an offense, the gospel will be the offense, not us. Abel, we can learn much from him about worshiping in faith. A true sacrifice, true righteousness, and a true witness. And God provides it all. Don't be overwhelmed. God provides it all. Now here's your homework. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> well, here's one suggestion. I want you to go to mini church this week. Some of you say, mini church, what's that? Ask your neighbor, they'll tell you. Say, well, I don't have a mini church. Find one. There's enough of them. There's almost a hundred of them. Go to mini church this week, and I want you to risk. That means you've got to trust God, right? 
I want you to risk, and I want you to share with the people in that group what God has been speaking to you about with respect to trusting Him over. God speaks to all of us. And you say, God's not talking to me about anything. You better start listening. You better start listening. You say, God, talk to me. You got, you got a couple days, right, till Wednesday night? Go home, get on your knees, get quiet, get, turn off the TV, don't... Just get quiet. Say, God, talk to me. What is it right now that you want me to trust you with? What is it that you want me to let go of, not to, 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 to try to control, to keep my own image, to... So I can be accepted, liked. What is it, God, that one thing that you want, the key thing to let go of, that I need to trust you with? And then I want you to go to mini church. I want you to share that. This is what God's told me to trust Him with. So that those people can pray for you and encourage you and support you in that. You say, but wait, Pastor, I have so many questions. Good. Go to mini church. Ask your questions. Let those other fellow strugglers, those other fellow questioners, let them help grapple with your questions also. Cool? 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 Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that you love us. You have given your very best for us. You continue to provide. You reach into our lives. You speak to us continually. Lord, thank you. And thank you that Jesus is the basis upon which we can have a relationship with you forever and ever and ever. We can be secure with you. We can be safe with you. Jesus has made that possible. And he has secured that for us. Lord, open our eyes to these things. Show us those areas in which you want us to trust you. To take our hands off, to leave off the, the other things that we, we've been doing to manipulate, to, to try to make things happen. Show us. But we can trust to you, Lord. Start us on that journey of true faith. And Lord, our lives, that our lives may be a powerful witness to others. God, thank you. Keep your heads bowed for just a second. I, I just want to take another moment or two to offer anybody who wants to be saved. You want a new life, a second chance. Something that we said this morning has struck your heart. God has spoken to you. I want to be able to pray with you this morning and just a real simple prayer, lead you in a prayer. So that you can say, God, I want to be saved. I want a new life. I want a second chance. Don't think you have to have all the theology down straight. There's some just some basic things you need to understand right now. One of them is you need to know you're a sinner. You need to be willing to acknowledge that. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I've broken your laws. I'm guilty before you, and you're the only one that can forgive me. And I realize right now that, that no amount of good deeds can make up for my sin. I can't appease your anger and your wrath with my own resources. But I also heard this morning that you killed your own son for me. That Jesus died in my place. That I might have life. That you could forgive me on that basis. That Jesus took all my sins upon himself. And you punished them all there. God, that's wonderful. And now you're offering me free life. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sins. It's a free gift. See, if you understand these things, then you can receive that free gift. If you're willing 
to trust what God said about you being a sinner, you needing forgiveness, and Jesus being the source of that forgiveness. If you're willing to trust Him, take that step of faith. And I invite you to pray with me. And God will come in by His Spirit, and He will invade your life, because He knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you do. He will come in and He'll invade your life, and He'll begin that process of transformation. He'll remake you. Set you free. Give you new life. I'm going to pray in just a second, but I, I don't want to pray by myself. I want to know if there's somebody else who wants to pray with me. If you do, you can just lift your hand right where you're sitting. That will be a signal to me that you say, Pastor, I want to pray with you. I'm putting my hand up in the air. And then we'll pray together in just a moment. Is there anybody at all that wants to pray? You want to be saved. You want to become a Christian. Just lift your hand. Anybody at all? I see your hand. God bless you. Okay. I see your hand over here, and I see these two hands on this side. Okay. Anybody else? Right back there? Okay, I see that hand also in the back. Over here? Okay. Anybody else? You ready to make, take that? It's, just, it's a step. You say, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to give my life to Jesus right now. I'm going to put my life in his hands. I'm going to let him direct me. Down in the middle? Okay, I see. Right. I see your hand up in the air. Okay. I see your hand too. God bless you. Okay, let's pray. If you raise your hand, make this your prayer. I'm going to pray it from the platform here. You kind of hitchhike along, but you make it yours from your heart. God's reading your heart right now, okay? Very simply, God, forgive me. I confess that I am a sinner. I've rejected you. I've rejected everything. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. And I confess to you that I'm truly sorry, and I repent. I turn away from that, and I turn towards you. I believe in Jesus now. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he was buried and, in fact, rose from the dead after three days to bring me new life this morning. And so, God, I accept your offer, your free gift of new life. And I pray and ask you to come into me, live in my life by your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. Strengthen me by your power, that I may live my life worthy of you in every respect. God, make me new. Wash me clean. Give me that second chance. I believe. And God, for the very first time, I can now call you Father. And I give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. God bless you. A couple of things real quickly. Pastor Paul is in the back against the wall there, and he's got a little, some little packages. If you prayed with me, please stop by and pick up one of those little envelopes. It's got a tape in there and some other literature and information. It's going to be very helpful to you. Secondly, before you leave this morning, or this afternoon... <laughs> Before you leave, if you prayed with me, tell somebody. If you came with a friend or a family member, turn to that person and say, you know, I prayed with the pastor. Let them rejoice with you. If you're here by yourself, you didn't come with anybody, turn to your neighbor sitting with you. Let them rejoice with you. They're now your new brother and sister. Okay? Let's stand and let's sing his praises one more time before we dismiss. With all of my heart all of my heart, I will praise you, Lord, with all of my
Madrugal.